Before we kick this show off, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Under Pressure Outdoors is brought to you in part by Hasmore Outdoor Products. Hasmore Outdoor Products manufactures quality replacement seats for a multitude of climber brands as well as a host of other products built with the hunter in mind. Take it from us. Your butt will thank you and you'll be able to spend more hours in your stand. Hop over to their website by clicking on the link in the podcast description and order the tree stand trick out kit for your stand today and you'll have everything you need to hunt longer and harder. Make sure you use code UPO15 at checkout to get 15% off your next order. I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Well, we, we really appreciate you coming in and joining us at 1.30 in the morning all the way from Denmark to do a podcast <laughs> with us. <laughs> yeah, well, well, no worries. I'm delighted to be here. So it's always fun, you know, to, to meet people. And, and as long as, you know, we all share the same uh, common interest, you know, and I always had the saying that when we put on green clothes, you know, all is equal and we all want to do the same. So it doesn't matter if you're from the States or... England, Africa, Australia, Denmark. We we're, we're all hunters. The only thing is as wrong as the time. Well, but at least I have a, I have a bonfire out in the garden. Well, there you go. <laughs> you, you and I you and I share a common pain in the fact that we both hunted with Dan. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and you know every every guy gets to do one mistake in his life, you know. Oh. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> To be, to be fair, you both have shot deer in my backyard. Both on uh, yeah. your first visit to my backyard. Fair yeah. enough. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll give it to you. You're you're, you're a decent guide. Uh, <laughs> and, uh... So we brought you on this week uh, to talk about, well, in reality, uh, hunting in in Europe because it's it's vastly different, uh, from my understanding, from the way. Uh, like regulation wise, the way we do things here in the United States. Yeah. And, and uh, that's always something that, that kind of interests me. And I, and I, you know, I've heard Dan has told me so many stories over the times we hunted together when, uh, when I lived in Georgia and uh, it seems it's quite fascinating. Some of the stories he's got to tell. So what, um, how, how did you, how did you get into hunting? being from Denmark and living in Denmark? Well, first of all, I was born and raised on a farm. Uh, my dad was a hunter. Uh, and I think I grew up, you know, like like most uh, young kids do back then in the 80s. Um, a lot of work and, you know, and and then we can we could go hunting. You know, I got this uh, pellet gun when I was a young kid, starting to shoot sparrows and whatever and so on. Um, but I think I, I quite early catch it on to wanted it to do it more. We are the rednecks of Denmark. Uh, Copenhagen is uh, is uh, built correctly and stuff like that, but we we're the rednecks. So, but there's also you can't 
just do anything. But I quite early uh, decided that I wanted to work more professional with Hunt because hunting for me is not about the killing. Uh, I've done a lot of killing, but it's, it's more the conservation and the preservation of nature. Um, but also to, to learning all the skills. Uh, so I actually, when I was a young kid, uh, I think I was 18 years old, I got, uh, got to work at a, at a big estate in Denmark where they do a lot of bird shooting. We have a lot of traditional bird shooting in Denmark, which is actually compared to the British. I don't know if you know the, you know, the, the driven days with the pheasants and the ducks, you know, you dress up in tweed and, uh, you know, have a thighs and everything on. Uh, and it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a big uh, celebration day, you know, it's, it's like getting invited to a party. So I got my, my education and my school there from rearing birds and maintaining the lands. And after a couple of years, I decided to go to Africa. I lived down there for a year, uh, working in hunting as well, uh, just to see something else and, and, and want to try more. Uh, and from there, you know, it, it, it just, yeah, <laughs> kept going. Um, and now all I do for a living is hunting. So, but I think it's, it's, it's a lot about you really want to do it because a lot of people has it uh, or do hunting as a hobby. Uh, it's my livelihood. So. So before we go any further, let me go ahead and introduce everybody. Uh, I'm your host, Will Krebs. I got Jordan. Yeah, I'm right here. Jim. Yes, sir. Dan. How's it going? Yeah, you say something, Dan. <laughs> and uh, I, I did. <laughs> And Thomas, and like I stated earlier, Thomas, it's it's one thirty in the morning in Denmark yeah. where Thomas is at, and we're here at nice seven thirty. Even we're having a, a a nice cold beer, and uh, Thomas is is sipping on the coffee to try and stay awake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but, I think it's kind of funny how he said he got his start in hunting with a pellet gun shooting birds. I mean, that's the same way I, I would say that's yeah. literally the same exact way we did. Like. It's not that vastly different. No. But, but don't you think it's also got to do with, uh, with uh, what, what can you do when you're 10 years old, you know? Uh, right. In Denmark, yeah. we have a lot of laws. We cannot go out uh, like you can uh, in the stage, hunt with your dad and shoot a deer, for instance. Uh, you're not allowed to do that in Denmark until you're 16. You can get your hunter's license when you're 16 years old. You're not allowed to shoot... Uh, any kinds of animal before you got your hunting license. You're allowed to go to the shooting range as long as you have an instructor with you. But otherwise, we can't. So it's pellet gun or nothing. You know, that's kind of interesting because there are some states in um, the United States that do restrict an age at which a child can go and, like, hunt with a rifle or a bow. Um, some some states don't. Actually, the majority of the states don't. Uh, and I really think that, in my personal opinion, it should be up to the parents when the child, because each child's maturity level is different. Um, I mean, I personally killed my first deer. I was 12, and I think I started carrying a rifle and hunting. And now I say I say carrying a rifle. I was going with my dad in the same tree stand, 
but I had a rifle that I was going to shoot. Uh, and I would carry the unloaded, you know, shoulder, carry the unloaded rifle over my shoulder till we got to the tree stand. And before we were ready to shoot a deer, we'd put around in the chamber and then it's, you know, safe, you know, safety, safety, safety from there on out. But mm. and dad told you what you could and couldn't shoot. Right. I wasn't just set loose on my own. Yeah. I, I don't think I sat truly by myself until I was probably 15 years old. At the age of 13 and 14, I would sit in a separate tree stand, but I was always within eyesight, you know, 30 or 40 yards from my dad. He could see me through the trees. Um, And then once I got older, then it it progressed to a point where it was like, yep, you're on your own. Go sit over here. You're about that 15, 16-year-old time frame. Uh, But at that point, at 16 years old, I mean, I'd been hunting with my dad for 12 years. Yeah. So, and, and like my son is six and he goes with me all the time when we go out and he sits in the tree stand with me and, uh, you know, he's been with me the last few times I've shot a deer. He's not quite ready to shoot a deer yet, but he does get out and we do some duck hunting and he water whacks a duck every now and then and gets to shoot at a squirrel with a 410 if we get a chance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The age is somewhat arbitrary because there's, there, there are children who are six and 10 years old. Well, six might be a little young, but. There's definitely kids that are 10 and 12 years old that would be completely safe and competent in the woods with a firearm by themselves. And I've had more than one experience with men well into their 40s who have that were not been in the military, been around firearms for quite a bit of their adult life that still don't have the maturity or the basic common sense to realistically operate safely in the woods. So, yeah, I'm with you, Will. Parents... I understand why the laws are there, but really it should be up to the parents. Well, that goes back to the same thing as, as having poundage laws on a on a bow. Mm-hmm. Uh, some states have a minimum. Some states don't. Uh, and that's, I don't know. That, 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 me, that, that, I'd say to me that's understandable. That To me that almost goes back to having like caliber. Like you can't, you're not supposed to hunt whitetail unless it's a rimfire rifle. That's fair enough. You don't want guys... Yeah. Belly shooting deer with twenty two. Yeah, well that's what I'm saying poundage laws with a bow. You don't want some you don't want somebody shooting belly shot in a deer with a twenty pound bow. Yeah. Right. I understand that. But I don't know. It, it's it's kind of it, it can get a bit invasive. Um and it works some places. Florida used to have one, they don't anymore. Now, granted it was fairly low, I think it was twenty five pounds or something like that. But and I think a lot of times the states that do have it set are set at twenty five to thirty pounds, which I think if you fair. draw thirty pounds back, that's really not heavy at all. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. Some of those laws are, are very different. Well, uh, when you uh, when you start talking about bow hunting, especially in Europe, because there's only what thirteen or fourteen countries in Europe that you can actually bow hunt, and the biggest grievance they have is they uh, they don't think bow hunting is a an ethical way to dispatch an animal, uh, regardless of how much information is out there. And uh, Denmark uh, allows you to hunt roe deer, and recently in 2018, uh, finally authorized it for uh, hunting uh, red stag. Um, but, but they canceled Ger- that again from oh, this season they? on. Yeah, because it well, was a three years uh, trial, and. Uh, they needed evidence on how the uh, killing, or what we, what we should call it, uh, was harvesting. working with the bow. Yeah, on how the harvesting was going with the bow on the big animals. 
But apparently they didn't get enough. Uh, there wasn't enough harvest for them to make uh, a decent um, argument to, to keep it up. So they have decided to take it off again and then work it out on their own. I have no idea how they're going to work it out because there were shot so few red deers and fallows. So I don't know how, but they took it off now. So now we're back to only rodents. How is the population, meaning um, is there a question of the, the roe deer and the stag um, exceeding the, the land's carrying capacity? Are they running into those problems? How, how do they? Now, uh, for, for the time being, we got a huge population of all four deer species that we have in Denmark. Uh, we have the roe deer, we have the seeker, we have the fallow, and we have the red deer. So, uh, All deers are increasing in numbers and are, uh, they're not over the capacity of the habitat, but some areas are above the, the I guess, actual I guess, ideal numbers. Yeah. I guess that was my, the impetus of my question was, <clears throat> really should have been, does Denmark use hunting as a method of managing the population? Do they, I mean, is it, is, it, is it part of their management plan where they, they acknowledge that it is a way to manage the population or is it, is it not politically acceptable? Uh, both yes and no, but actually we, we don't manage the population. Well, the hunters do, and we say that is what we are doing, and we are. We are managing the population. We are managing the habitat, but uh, politically... There is no problem with whatsoever uh, how many deer there were. It's, it's nothing that, that a normal Dane who's not a hunter would ever consider whatsoever. And um, if you take Britain, for instance, or your place, uh, you'll manage uh, the deers on the areas and say we need to take out this and this and so and so. But in Denmark, all hunting is bound to the property so we have no public land uh well we do have few public lands and you can take a leash on the hunt there but they won't set a specific amount that you need to shoot but they'll uh, otherwise they'll increase and say this is the maximum that you can shoot because in denmark you're allowed to hunt all kinds of private land at least five hectares big but there's no tax, there's no bag limits, there's no nothing. So if you have five hectares who is sitting in between two nice woods, you can shoot 15 Robux, 30 Robux, or 50 Robux. No one will stop you. It is mm. privately owned, and there's no national management plan on any of the deals. And you see, that's a that's a, a big difference between there and what we have here because you know yep. we have the state biologists that are going over. Even you, you have biologists that break it down by the different types of animals you'll have here in Florida. You've got your your deer biologists, bear biologists, waterfowl biologists, fisheries biologists, and they're all studying their own uh, sector to to set bag limits and and slot sizes for fish and so on and so forth to make sure yeah. that the population stays sustainable whereas if i correct me if i'm wrong but the, the what what you're saying is there it is up to the land owner exactly so 
I just want to clarify when he says five hectares over here, we're looking at that would be 12 acres for us. Yeah, 10, 10 12 acres, something yeah. like that. 12.35 12. 12. 12. 12. 12. 12. 12. 12. acres. Exactly. <laughs> you, <know. clears throat> you calculated that out way more precise than I did. Google. Don't let him fool yeah. you. That it was, was Google. Google. <laughs> I, I want to be clear that I wasn't asking that question like, out of judgment, right? Because each country has a, you know, has is, has their own sovereign authority to, to do what they want, and you know, certainly. Well, I don't know if everybody, but you know, Denmark has its way of doing things, and they're happy with it. I was asking the question more out of a out of a curiosity, going back to archery, because because as Will already mentioned, that we have biologists that are constantly monitoring populations, and they they have a target goal, roughly of how many of each animal they'd like to have, and especially with deer they realize we have a lot of times very long archery seasons and then short rifle seasons. Um, but if the deer capacity or the deer start to exceed their capacity, one of the things they'll usually do is increase the rifle season because the efficacy is a lot greater. And I, I was wondering about that going back to the comments that you made about, um, that they didn't harvest enough roe deer to get the data to find out if, if bow hunting met, an acceptable lot of amount of ef- efficacy. And I was kind of like, well, that's the whole point of bow hunting, right? Is that you, you, you but then, but then you, then you answered the question and that, well, you don't really have rules like we do of, there is no, there is no limit on take. So they're not really worried about over harvest or uh, well, under harvest. Well, to be, to be clear, it was, it was the red stag that they're no longer allowed to bow hunt. Correct. We can still uh, bow hunt roe deer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but okay. for the red stacks and for the fellows, actually, we we do start to have some kind of a, of national uh, target uh, on the red deer population. But that's only uh, when it comes to the stack. We want more mature stacks. Uh, we want older stacks in the population. It's Arizona. Uh, sorry. Sorry, I was taking, telling a joke. It's it's Arizona. Right, in Arizona, they they, they 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 tend to manage for quality as opposed to. Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They're, they're actually only thinking about uh, it's not trophy quality when when you ask the uh, <laughs> the, the political uh, the politicians, but it is some biologists uh, seem to mean that if you have older stacks in your population, you'll have better rutting times. You'll mm. make sure that there's more calves and. Uh, in general, the population will be better, uh, and and all the the animals will be in better conditions and have better chance of surviving the winters and stuff like that. But keep this in mind that I said to you before that all the animals are increasing in numbers. That means that the red deers are increasing in numbers. So if we take this argument that we need older stacks to make sure that our population will be more healthy and will have more calves. Then that, that kind of collides, you know, because we're already increasing in numbers and we already have troubles in some areas, especially with the red deers, because it, to be honest, it's uh, when we have uh, herds of, of 50, 100, 200, 300 red deer stacks, and you can even find them on four, five, 600 heads in one herd. It's like a huge herd of cattle. They come yeah. out and they eat everything. It's it's a big animal. Uh, it's it's like a miniature elk. You know, it's it's 
about uh, a huge mature stag will be 200 and 250 kilograms. Uh, so it's it's quite a big animal. And and that's Denmark for you because you can look out the window and I can see that the population is increasing in my land. Uh, I conduct the, the hunt uh, on my land is around uh, 600 hectares. That must be around 1,200 something acres <laughs> um, or 13 or whatever hundred acres. And on yeah. that land is, uh, <laughs> I, th I think you have the numbers on acres, but on yeah, but that land, 1,200. I, yeah, 12. on that land, I can see the red deer population, also the fallow and the roebucks, are increasing in numbers, but also because we are maintaining the population correct and we're shooting what we believe to be the correct amount to, to, to take out. But in general, we have no regulations. We have no longer uh, seasons for bow. Uh, we have the exact same season for bow, for rifle, for shotgun. Uh, and you can take uh, roadie, for instance, which is the smallest one. We can take them with shotgun, we can take them with rifle, we can take them with bow. For the fallow, for the seeker, and for the red deer, we can only take them with rifle. We cannot take them with shotgun, we are not allowed to use slocks, we're not uh, allowed to use, um, what do you call that one lead bullet. Shot. Uh, yeah, those are slugs. Oh, yeah, shots, slugs. Slugs. yeah, and box shots. We're not allowed to use them, <clears throat> so we're not allowed to take uh, bigger uh, deers than roe deer with the shotgun. And the bow, you're not allowed to. And another thing with bow is that you need to take a separate hunting course to be allowed to hunt with the bow in Denmark. And also every fifth year, you need to take a, a practice uh, test to... Shoot, shooting test. Shooting test, yeah, uh, to show your, your accuracy. Um, where it goes with rifle, you only need to go to, to a shooting test where you should put uh, five out of six bullet uh, within, I think it's uh, 20 centimeters diameter, something like that. But we have a lot of, lot of regulations on what you're allowed to uh, hunt with and uh, what kind of animal you're allowed to hunt. But a lot of it doesn't make any sense, and especially compared to you guys where you can hunt with bows and, and everything. And you can, you can even take elephants down with bow. So yeah. it's, it's, it's just complete nonsense. But I don't know how to get through to the politicians because it makes absolutely no sense. We can show them a video of, of a bull elephant on, on five, six tons uh, with a complete uh, headshot from a bow. And then they say, no, 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 it's, it's, it's not big enough for red deer. It's like, all right, yeah, well, okay, yeah. never mind. I'll, I'll put it in perspective. When he says a red deer is 250 kilograms, one kilogram is two pounds. So you're looking about a 500-pound deer. Yeah. Small, small elk are really big mammoth yeah. muley. I mean, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, that's – actually, that's not really a small elk. That's a good size elk because moose yeah. are like – Yeah. Yeah. But I, from the spirit, I, I do appreciate the spirit of what I guess the politicians, the regulators are trying to do, right? It is, it is about ethical harvest and making sure that the sportsmen are not going out and creating what might be viewed as waste. Like I do, I do genuinely, genuinely appreciate the spirit, 
But to your point, <clears throat> that seems like there's probably some room to come back. But I also don't know what the culturally, I don't know what the motivation is for the average Danish. Is that the right? Is that the, is that the right word? Danish yeah, sportsman. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if, yeah. if culturally it's the same way. I don't know if it's all about food. Because um, there's not really a universal culture in the United States where we all hunt for the same reason either. Um, I think most of us, at least most of the people we encounter, do like to be ethical, um, don't care to wound game, certainly are not masochistic about it. Uh, every now and again you run into somebody, a lot of times it's inexperienced or young, that's a little crude, but... So I can I can I can I can appreciate the spirit of what they're trying to accomplish, but it seems listening to you and your comments, obviously the frustration is you've gone too far. You're now prohibiting people that are already naturally ethical, that are hunting for food, hunting for all the self satisfaction. Like we'll we'll police ourselves and we'll be just fine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that is probably the most correct uh, thing that. That I've heard anyone say, we, we will police ourselves and we will be, be correct about it. You'll always find this half percentage, one percentage uh, of the hunters out there who is unethical, who either shoot too much, uh, shoot too bad, um, something's wrong, you know, but you can always find them. But yeah, you can they, find they don't, them anyway. They don't care about they, the they, rules anyway. You can pass more no, laws and they no. just ignore those too. Yeah, and it's the same. It, it, it doesn't need to be in, in, uh, in hunting. It could be in golf or whatever, whatever. You'll always find that one percentage. But you, are, you said, what, what, uh, what's the background or, or the culture for, for hunting? Uh, most hunters in Denmark uh, still hunt for the meat. That is uh, the prime thing. Uh, and also, of course, for the sportsmanship. Um, and and then for the trophy on on something, uh, and then for for maintaining, uh, but that's that's maybe also for for the professional. I was to say too. I feel like you know you said earlier you were talking about bird hunting and how it was just kind of like it was kind of like getting invited to the party if you got you know to go bird hunting. And I feel like another part of hunting itself is the camaraderie. Right, it's yeah. like get, it's like getting invited. You get to go hang out with the people, and uh, and enjoy the same thing that those people enjoy as well, with them. And especially on, on the bird hunting and these uh, big social hunts, because we do them a lot in Denmark. Where, in my uh, experience, or what I've read or been told or seen from the states. Most of you guys, uh, you hunt uh, either alone or two or three guys together. And then you hunt for mainly mammals or turkeys. And sometimes you shoot a bit of bow, or doves or ducks or something. In Denmark, the tradition is that you get together, friends and neighbors, on a Saturday. You take your shotgun and you go over the fields and the hedgerows, and the small ponds and the small forest, and you shoot a little bit. You may shoot a fox or a hare or a pheasant or a crow even, or sometimes we don't even shoot anything. But that was what I grew up with. Uh, and that is what we still do today. You know, we invite 10 people to come over on a Saturday. We go out, shoot a few animals, birds and so on. Then the next Saturday, 
one of the other guys invites and the next Saturday another guy and so on and so on and so on. In that way, we get to see throughout a season if we're 10 guys, I get to come to visit nine other places to go hunt on their land, on their lease. And that is how you, you get into the, the network of hunting in Denmark. <clears throat> also because a lease on the hunt in Denmark is quite uh, expensive. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Small country, a lot of hunters. Well, I'd say one of the things that Thomas and I have talked about on, you know, many of our hunts is, uh, you know, it's the community of hunting. And it's one of the things I really appreciated through hunting in Europe is that, you know, we go out there to, to share commonality, common experiences. And regardless of where we grew up on what side of the pond, you know, there's parallels for, for that community. And, and the, the level of community that happens uh, on a couple of hunts that I've done on Thomas's property and, and with him, you know, afterwards, whether you were successful or not, you know, you celebrate the success. There's the, the, the pageantry, you know, you sit down the ceremony where you have a little glass of schnapps to celebrate, you know, a, a good kill and, um, you know, the, the paying respect to the animal and, and ensuring that it has its last you know, bite of food and you thank, you, you know, you thank that animal for their harvest. And it's really something that uh, many Americans don't get to experience. And it's, it's that cultural shift of that uh, kind of how they do it over there that, that, I, that I really grew to appreciate and, and really changed the way I thought about hunting in the U.S. a lot. Oh, so I can really respect. It seems like you're, you're giving that animal its, its last respect and thanking it for its bounty. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's excellent. We we have a lot more culture uh, uh, in our hunting history uh, than maybe you do. Also, because the European hunting history is, uh, of course, it's it's more old than than the American way of hunting is. Uh, but after a day's hunting, after a day's shooting, we line up all the game. Uh, we have. Uh, we have uh, written uh, lines on how it's supposed to lay. Uh, red deers first, woodcock on the neck. Uh, afterwards, the other deers. Uh, then you have pheasants over partridge, uh, mallet over teal, hares, and so on, so on, so on, so forth. A fox at the top, because actually the fox is very treasured on a hunt to shoot it. Uh, and then we blow uh, those horns. We have those hunting horns that we play. So we put it all up on the parade. Uh, we have uh, torches and everything. And then we play a piece of music for every animal. There's a, every species has its own piece of music. And then everyone is standing there. You know, you have the beaters and, and the guys who's uh, the retrievers. Uh, you have the... Um, the, the hunting chief or the owner or, or whoever it is who's, uh, who's conducting this hunt. And then you have the, the guns. Uh, and they're standing uh, all uh, in the correct, correct positions and everyone is uh, saluting each other and say thank you a lot. And, and that's, there's a lot of tradition into it. And, and I think that, that's probably one of the biggest differences between here in, in especially uh, Europe and also especially in Eastern Europe, uh, both German 
Hungary, Poland, uh, Denmark. Uh, we have a lot of this parade thing. They don't do as much on the British islands, England, Scotland, and stuff like that. But you don't do it at all, do you? No. no. Not, not to that extent, but what he described yeah. about a bunch of guys getting together, walking around, right, shooting different game, then all coming back together, celebrating it, maybe having a cocktail. That sounds an awful lot like an under-pressure outdoor small game hunt. It does. Yeah. I'm already thinking, yeah. all right, now yeah, we, we got to add theme music and a parade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's one of the things we like to get. We get together, you know, we, we host probably three to four small game hunts a year, and we just invite anybody that wants to come. And it's a great time to get uh, new hunters involved in it because when you're hunting things like squirrels and, um, rabbits rabbits and stuff like that you can take someone who is relatively new to the sport yeah. and you can walk you don't have to be so conscious about being super still and super quiet you can you can move about you can talk they can ask questions the whole time we're walking hunting squirrels in late february i can i can walk around and show you this is deer sign this is where you'd want to sit if you're going to hunt deer we can find we, we can find all kinds of other stuff that they can use Next deer season, when they're going to go, you know, still hunt for deer uh, and things of that nature, and I, I really love those small game hunts because you get just all kinds of people out there, mm. and then we all gather back at the check station or a designated area at some point at the end of the day and tell stories and yeah. have a great time. You know, maybe part yeah. of the reason that we don't have all the pageantry, believe it or not, is because we we get to take it for granted. Right, we go out to one of those WMAs when they're open, and anybody can come. And it's there's no fee; we just go, and we do. You know, we talk about you know, we always need more land to hunt on. But what Tom was explaining is that it sounds like for the most part, unless you have access to a lease, somebody's kind enough to invite you. And I would imagine that even if you have the money, you don't you don't just get on a lease, right? You still have to be accepted, right? So. It's challenging. Yeah, awesome. It's th- it's it's a way to celebrate and not just honor the animal, but kind of like you might say, "Thank God I have the ability to do this," and thank you to my friends for allowing me to participate. It sounds pretty yeah. awesome. And, uh, this this might sound a bit uh, odd, but don't get me wrong. Um, uh, my land is 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 actually quite a big land to have for private hunting in Denmark. Uh, also because it's a small country. And uh, in Denmark, we have about 175,000 licensed hunters. Uh, out of these, I would say about 135 to 140,000 are active, which means that they'll go out at least one, once or twice a year uh, on, on a day's hunting. <clears throat> now, we have uh, Denmark is a farming country. Uh, we have uh, some of the most arable uh, land in Europe. We have no mountains, we have no rivers, we have uh, streams, uh, we have small ponds, we have no big lakes, uh, we have nothing. It's a rather flat country with a lot of farming. About 62, 63% of the land is farmland. So that means it'll be wheat, barley, rape, stuff like that. Not, not really an interesting place to go deer hunting, for instance. Well, there'll be rodeos there, but, but what you want is also, you want some forestry, you want some meadows and some moors and 
stuff like that, wetlands or whatever. But <laughs> take into consideration, you've got about 140,000 active hunters. You have about 62% of the country is farming land. Then you have about 10, 15% of the land, which is city, infrastructure, something like that. And now we, <laughs> then you have a lot of coastline. And now we're starting to, to go down to, you can, you can do the math. There's not a lot, of, a lot of land for all these hunters. So to take a lease in Denmark, if you find a good forest, a good piece of woodland where you have uh, red deers, it'll cost you uh, $200 per hectare. So that'll be about $100 per acre. So if you yeah. take 200 acres, which is not big, in comparison, mine is about 12, 1,300 acres. You can do your math yourself. So <laughs> you're telling me, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking it, at, I'm looking at leases in like South Georgia and South Alabama and going, I don't know, man, $25 an acre is a lot. <laughs> yeah. But, but try to imagine to be a young hunter. Yeah. Imagine being a young guy, you're 16 years old, your, your heart is just pounding for this outdoor. You just want to go, you just want to do something. How on earth are these guys ever going to go out there? Because what they're fighting is CEOs, uh, you know, rich people uh, with a lot of money who can, who can pay these huge rent, these huge lease. And they won't invite a young guy like that. So what they do is that they find maybe guys like me who do a lot of uh, also food plots and crops and we're maintaining a lot of the land. We put out birds, rearing birds, and all that kind of stuff. And of course, for that, I need labor. So I need hands and I need feet. I don't need the brains because when you're 16 years old, it's not that big a brain anyways. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, know, I know mine wasn't. <laughs> but, but then you can take some of these guys and I have, I don't know, I get maybe 50 or hundreds um, a year, young guys, you know, either calling or writing on Facebook or Messenger. Can, can we do something to help to come out and work? And, and we actually tend to do that a lot and, and take in young people uh, also to give them a network because uh, if they come to me and, and they, they do some work, uh, they do some plantation, we do a lot of plantation and, and making more woodlands also because we sell hunts. Uh, we sell hunts on my land uh, where you can buy a day's shooting. Uh, and for that money, we transform uh, farming land into either woodlands or uh, digging up ponds or making more food plots, you know, just making more nature. We're taking farming and making it to nature. Uh, but, but that's actually one of the only reasons why young people can, can go out hunting in Denmark because the price range are so high. And then it has another uh, side effect when the price is that high then you are going out hunting. Then you're sitting to yourself and say, all right, I've just paid $5,000 for this lease. At least I'm going to have something for my freezer. And as we established, there's, there's no tax system, there's no holding back. So some of these guys who's paying a lot, 
also think that it's all right to shoot a lot, even though the land may not uh, be able to take that amount out that they do. For instance, to shoot five Robux, where maybe the land's capacity was one to two, but they paid a lot of money. And so, so you can see it's, it's complex. Very. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. I think we, we see a lot of those, those same things um, here, though. Uh, although the what we view as paying a lot of money to lease a place versus what you view as paying a lot of money to lease a place are obviously we just discussed vastly different. Uh, $25 an yeah. acre versus 200 to $100 an acre. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I think that that happens here as well. I, I mean, having been on several leases and, and run a lease i've i've heard it several times well i paid the lease why can't i just shoot whatever i want you know i think one of another one of the biggest things you hear stateside is well you can't eat horns right but that yeah. doesn't make it acceptable to shoot a spotted fawn <laughs> no like, <laughs> no but if you're but public that's, that's their excuse though you shoot a, a like a a year old deer or something very small. You can't eat horns. Yeah. I think they're saying though, it's, it's, it's hard. They're public land hunting. Let's face it, man. If you're hunting in a place like green swamp and a legal deer steps out in front of you, if you pass on it, you, your, your, your season's probably over. Yeah. Right. If a legal deer steps out in front of you in green swamp and you don't drop the hammer on it, you're not going to see another one. Right. So I guess it kind of depends on where you're at too. Where in Seminole Forest or someplace like that, you might be a little bit more choosy. Unless a doe steps out in front of you in Rock Springs and you're on your buddy's guest pass. You don't yeah. ever pass that He's one got doe either. tags, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're actually saying something that if one deer steps out in front of you and if you don't take it, your season will be over. That's, that's in my opinion, not... Uh, overdoing it or being picky or anything because you actually only got one chance during the season over here you'll probably get 20 mm. so over here it's not about taking the chance it actually passing the chance that is the thing and 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 they don't because they'll shoot it all uh, some of these syndicates that take on these leases because uh, many of the leases are just way too expensive for one guy to take, so they'll create syndicates. And now we lost Dan. Uh, I'm getting nice. <laughs> <laughs> but but, uh, but you take these syndicates, and then sometimes they take a lease for one year, sometimes they do it for five years. And uh, then you see on the fifth year, if they're not uh, continuing the lease, you'll see them hammer everything on the fifth year. So the next syndicate or the next guy who's taking over this lease will use the first two years to try to rebuild the population of everything again. And it takes a lot of years to create great hunting ground uh, with a great population of most of the game, but it takes about a season and you could destroy 10 years works. I've seen it many times, and uh, part of my livelihood is creating areas for other people, uh, especially rich people who pay me a lot of money to. <laughs> 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 they, they, they buy wood, 
and then they come and say, Thomas, uh, I've, I've bought this wood. What, what should I do to make more deer here? I'll say, okay, give you, give me your, your checkbook and I'll make it happen. But uh, <laughs> no, but uh, it, it takes very, very short time to destroy small areas like we have. I had the pleasure of hunting with, with Dan in, uh, in Fort Stewart, those swamps down in Georgia. It was terrific. But I think we established that Fort Stewart alone was about 10% or 15% of Denmark total size. You got more nature in Fort Stewart than in all of Denmark in total. Jeez. Wow. Now, Fort Stewart is the largest base east of the Mississippi. So it's, it's pretty dang big. But it's only it's a small fraction of Georgia. Acres. Yeah. 243,000 acres. Yeah. Right, it is we, a small fraction of Georgia. You're, you're right. It is a very small fraction of Georgia. And he's saying that's pretty much all of the hunting land in total in Denmark, yet you guys had a lease in Georgia. I got a lease. There's at least the whole rest of the state, you know, outside of the cities is all leased out privately. And we're all, and, and under the state game laws, you get two bucks and nine does and the population's not dropping. So... You're, you're, well, you're trying to put things into scale. That. Hunting is is really got to be revered. No wonder you got to be a millionaire to hunt over there. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, culturally, hunting was a, a wealthy man's game forever in Europe. You know, it was the king's deer. It was the yeah, nobleman's it was king's deer. deer. It, was, it was king's. So, yeah. so it was it was one of those things where it was not available to every man. Where when the U.S. was established, we were hunting for sustenance and all of that. So that we didn't have the limitations that are, you know, imposed historically in Europe, in America, when it comes to hunting, which is why they have those, you know, ceremony, pageantry, and, and you know, the expense of the hunt. Makes sense. You know, what's ironic, yeah. though, is despite all that, what you just said about how we, you know, in the 1800s, we almost killed it all. Oh, and yeah. If, and if it oh, wasn't yeah, for the sportsmen, we wouldn't have them back now. Oh, oh. correct. It's the same in Denmark. And, and one thing that I've always been extremely impressed about is that you had that migration pigeon. And you had billions of it. I can't remember the name, but it was some kind of uh, passenger migration pigeon. pigeon. Yeah, the passenger pigeon. Yeah. yeah. You, had, you had it in billions. And somehow you managed to make it extinct. Yeah, so the, you're talking. <laughs> yeah, how, how the hell did that happen? You're, you're talking a bird that for, was literally for better shots. <laughs> a bird well, that was. I've seen you shoot. <laughs> a bird that was literally so plentiful that they would come in in flocks that would block out the sun. Yep. So Jeez. they weren't really studying, but one of the one of the theories about the pasture pigeon might be in how they bred in that it's kind of one of these weird things that if there weren't lots of them, then they just didn't breed. Like, so we start, no. we thinned them out pretty heavily. And then once you got to a certain point, it was just, it, the species yeah, was never going to recover. Right. But I, I don't well, know. Cause they're all gone. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I actually also read something about that, but, but also, as you told, you, you almost managed to, uh, to wipe out the entire, uh, whitetail population, uh, yeah. which is yeah. just... whitetail, turkey, and, and, ducks, geese, yeah. all of them. And it's, and it's actually not that many years ago. 
No. If you think no. back, you, you, they, they have recovered over, over actually a small period of time. And all thanks to the hunting society and the sportsmanship. Uh, who figured out that hunting is also conservation and it's preservation. Uh, and you could take South Africa, for instance. Uh, I lived down there, and that's about some 18, 20 years ago uh, when I was there. And South Africa today is the country in the world with most wildlife. They got all the species back. The reason why the white rhino is, uh, is, is not endangered at all uh, because they have them all in private lands down there. And, um, I think it's about six and a half, seven thousand of them on private land, but all thanks to the hunting. Also, the bunting bark, the sable antelope, and all those kinds of things. They're all back and they're plentiful, and all thanks to the hunting. Back in the 70s, there were hardly any antelope back in all of South Africa. And that's actually also quite a, quite a, quite a big area. Uh, but over a period of about 30, 35, 40 years, they were the most uh, wildlife-rich country in the world. But also you in the States, what you've managed to do with the tax system and, and to, to get all the populations back, that's, that's quite impressive. But also in Denmark, even though that we talk about that the, the leases are expensive and there's a lot of hunters, the populations of a lot of the species are actually increasing. We also have some of the, the small game who was bound to the more open land. They, they are struggling, but that's mainly more to do with the farming and those big fields. So. I was going to ask you about that when you mentioned that it's a very agrarian society with lots of fields. The first thing that came to mind were things like, uh, well, in our world, it would be what, uh, bobtail. Bob Till, I'm sorry, Bob, Bob White. White. Yeah, you know, quail birds. Yeah, where we've had the same problem that more modern farming, where they go fence to fence and they don't leave any bushy areas, really put a hurting on those birds. But now farmers are starting to leave m- more, uh, I guess, more scrub. Yeah, yes. more. He- exa- thank you very yeah. much. Hedgerows around the fences and things, and lo and behold. Yeah. Those species are coming back. I was wondering if there was a similar practice in Denmark. You, you know what's funny? You, you bring up Bob White Quail. Uh, one of the guys I work with just sent me a video just yesterday of his house near. Have you ever hunted the Plan B hole with this, Jim? You haven't, no. have you? Um, so the, we have we have a, a little private land uh, wood duck hole that we hunt. And we call it the Plan B hole because it's always just our our backup spot. And. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, you the know, plan B hole. Yeah. talking to an old gamekeeper. When I, uh, plan B, C, D, E. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he lives down the street, and this is not maybe 15 minutes from where we're sitting here recording in the studio right now. He sent me a video yesterday of a, a Bob White, and she's got maybe 10 or 12 babies with her just running around his yard. Awesome. And I was like, that is that is awesome, man. It's, it's great to see them coming back. And to be able to, I mean, we've got spots where we can go out. We know guys that have spots we go out without a dog and shoot quail on national forest land, public land here in Florida. And, I mean, if you have a dog, it makes it a lot easier. But they are coming back. I don't know that they'll ever be in the heyday that they were in the, you know, 70s and 80s in the time of Jerry Clower. When he, you know, he grew up hunting bobwhite quail, but now 
Is that is that a uh, a stag behind you? Oh yeah. Okay. Wait, he, he didn't get to answer the question yeah. about about bird no. hunting in in Denmark and whether that's something that's wow popular. It is. Uh, bird hunting is uh, is extreme. We, we can take a tour later. <laughs> uh, bird hunting is uh, is extremely popular in Denmark. Uh, also, because as we talked about this, the small game hunt, you know, where you get together ten guys, uh, the bird hunt is extremely popular. And when it comes to the farming and the modern day farming, which are getting bigger and bigger fields, less and lesser hedgerows, and stuff like that. And it's really putting a lot of pressure into the partridge, pheasants, uh, the hares. Uh, we, we only have a few islands in Denmark where we do have rabbits. Otherwise, we only have brown hair. Uh, and these, uh, these species are dependent on that kind of land where you have a lot of open land but also you have some bushes, trees, and stuff like that. But now we come to something very, very stupid in Denmark. We're part of the European Union. And in the European Union, we have a common uh, farming law, more or less. So when you have land in Denmark for farming, uh, you can get paid to farm this land because the European Union decided that so that they could control the prices on uh, groceries and foods and stuff like that, so that you wouldn't have two, two huge offsets from uh, Bulgaria or Poland to Denmark and England and stuff like that. So they're trying to, to level the prices so that it will be cheap for everyone. But... To get this money for farming the land, there's a lot of rules and regulations that you need to do. So if the farmer wanted to leave out a spot, or if he wanted to take five meters less out through a hedgerow, he's not allowed to. Then he'll have to go to his consultants, get new drawings made of his fields, get a new fertilizer, uh, regulations and also on and so on and so on. You're allowed to do some kind of uh, uh, of game uh, food plots and stuff like that, but you cannot just do with your land what you want. If you have 200 acres of farmland, you're going to farm those 200 acres. If you leave 10 of them out, you're not allowed. Then they'll take the money back. But not only on those 10 acres. They'll give you a fine as well and maybe they'll even take 5% of the rest of the 190 acres. So the farmers are scared to death of doing any kinds of mistakes or failures on this so that they'll get uh, drawn in this money and get fined. So that's why all the farmers in Denmark and most of, uh, of Europe, but especially in Denmark, because we always tend to to take these rules who come from the European Union and sharpen them so that they're even worse than they were actually intended. Now, but all the Danish farmers are shitty afraid of leaving hedgerows and stuff like that. Mm. Now, do you, do you get special regulations being that like uh, 
you have uh, you have to have a special license to essentially what we would call guide here uh no no you no you don't need to be special license to be a guide here okay uh i was guiding daniel he was probably Work. the worst Work. client i've ever had worst <laughs> guide i ever worked with so I kind of want to, I kind of want to switch gears here for a minute. How did you and Daniel? Uh, how did you and Daniel initially connect with each other? Uh, well, on Tinder. Yeah, oh. I was saying there, there's something you know where, where lonely men get together. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the bar. So, so I uh, I'm a team member for an organization called Wild Jaeger, um, and we are a U.S. organization that brings hunting technology and opportunities to Europeans and vice versa. And we were actually contacting uh, Thomas and his organization up there because we were looking for a spring hunt for roe deer. And the roe deer season in Denmark opens up on 15 May. 16. So we, we were going up 16 May, my bad. So we were going up to, uh, to vet his property as a potential location to bring clients to. And Thomas and I got to hut together and he realized that I, I was not a very good listener and uh finally he decided to uh take me by the by the hand and say hey you're gonna hunt with me because i can't trust you to do it yourself and uh and, and we got and we got along famously we all know there and, was no uh, way from he there was, we all know there was no way he was taking you by the hair so <laughs> no, no. yeah well that, 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 that's we're, fair that's fair well, we we started hunting roadies, but but well after after the mics are, are shot, uh, he he can tell you what he shot. <laughs> so I'm just saying, I'm one of the few people that have shot a bunny in uh, in in uh, guard area. Yeah, yeah, we and we got no wild rabbits. Just just keep that in mind. We got no wild. <laughs> oh, oh man! Oh. <laughs> and I'm still a kid. No, looking I, for his rabbit. <laughs> yeah, I got a I got a story for you about that when we uh, we shut this down to. You got white bunnies in in Denmark. <laughs> uh, to, to be fair, to be fair, it it was actually organized and it was okay. <laughs> but, this, but the story is better when we tell this on the first way. <laughs> um, but but through but through that hunting experience Thomas and I had a week uh, basically a week getting to know each other and uh, and we found a lot of commonality um, we stayed in touch and then we uh, I you know as, as he said I invited him over to the US and uh, he spent two weeks with me hunting here down in South Georgia in the mountains of Georgia and then uh, you know I, I've also been over to his place to hunt since then and uh, you know but that that to me is like the crux of the hunting community Exactly. Is, is, those, is those shared experiences and those relationships and those connections you make with folks. And I've been blessed to have it internationally and, you know, where a lot of folks just could experience it, you know, in their local areas. So if a crazy gung-ho American uh, wants to come over there and hunt in Denmark, what's, what's that process look like? Uh, it's actually quite easy because uh, all, as long as you have an American hunting license, uh, all you actually do is that uh, you'll email uh, any outfitter, estate, me, or something like that. And then we're going to we'll focus apply. specifically on you. All right. <laughs> well, well, you'll uh, you'll simply uh, forward it to me, and then I will uh, arrange for what is called a Danish uh, 
was it called guest hunting license you can get that uh i think the cost is about 75 dollars something Jeez. like that 50 75 and then your license to hunt with what you are licensed to hunt with in america uh and of course what is legal to hunt with in denmark except for the bow because if you need to hunt with the bow in denmark you need to take even though that you got all the license in the states uh unless they changed it over the last couple of years i'll have to say i don't know that otherwise you would have to take this shooting test so that a danish authority could see that you were able to hit uh and the danish bow hunters test is i believe in 20 meters uh the ethical shooting range uh or the ethical range of shooting on deers in denmark is 20 meters i do believe that the americans are able to shoot a little bit further yeah but most of them don't some, some are then yeah. are not but yeah. some are <laughs> Yeah, so like, so like, uh, in preparation to go hunt at uh, Thomas's property the first time, um, I took a uh, international hunters, a bow hunters course, and so it certified me to be able to hunt bow hunt anywhere in Europe. And so we had it was like a week long course, and then you do a shooting test at the end, and you get an international bow hunters card, which might be in my wallet still, probably not. But uh, it, and so you just present. So like when I got to Thomas's, I presented that. I presented my U.S. hunting license. And uh, and that was enough to be able to get get through and get licensed for that. Now you can can you take that course here in the states and then? Yes, one hundred. Yes, exactly. So that course is actually designed. I want to say it was uh, out of Montana originally, um, and then it's just been pushed forward. So the, it, it's offered uh, several places throughout the U.S. and then obviously uh, we we held it in Germany through the uh, Wild Jaeger Bilsec office. Yeah, so, you were stationed in Germany for a while, and I assume that's when you met Thomas? That's correct. Yeah. So once a person gets their license, I mean, I assume there's there's an additional cost because you, you have to have access to one of the leases. Does that, I assume that's dependent on what you'd like to hunt? Yeah. If if I was to, uh, as the time for, for when Daniel was here or when we have had other clients or also for other foreign clients. Uh, we have had a lot of different uh, people here at my place. Uh, but <clears throat> then it depends on what kind of hunt you want to buy. Uh, uh, if you want to hunt for deers, uh, it'll be this and this days. You know, it'll, it'll be exactly like a hunting trip that you'll take anywhere to South Africa. Something will decide on number of days. Uh, we'll go hunt for uh, for deer uh, in any kind or whatever we'll go hunt for and then you'll take a, a trophy fee uh, on each deer that you shoot uh, that could be either it could be a one size fee whatever or it could be a fee uh, depending on the size or depending on what kind of animal and something like that um, and, and Denmark is, is probably not the cheapest place to go hunting because, as you know, the, the leases are expensive and, in general, the, the living expenses in Denmark are quite high. Uh, the, the earnings in Denmark are, are quite high as well, but uh, we have a lot of uh, 
value added tax and things like that that drive it up. Yeah, <laughs> we got a shitload of taxes. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> we we got the most in the world. Um, so if somebody, I guess, and if you don't want to, I don't think we have enough people that are going to be that interested. But just, I guess I am. My personal interest meter is is rather high. If we want to go to Denmark and say hunt roe deer. Or have some sort of mixed bag where you go out and hunt roe deer, but I'm also fascinated by the idea of we just kick around with a shotgun and see what jumps. What is something like that? What would a hunter expect to pay for an experience like that over three or five days? Uh, if we should say if if we should say in total, you know, with the accommodation and everything, uh, full board accommodation. Uh, I would say you'll look into maybe between two and two and a half thousand. Okay, uh, so that, that's fairly yeah. similar to an, an event in the United States if you want to travel and go to a different state. Um, yeah. Yeah, in fact, I think that you're quite comparable. I mean, aside from the additional expense of the airfare to get to Denmark, I don't think that's out of range of a lot of American hunters that would say pay a guide to take them uh, deer hunting in in places in the United States, or certainly elk hunting, will set you back somewhere between seven and fifteen thousand, depending on yeah. where you want to go. It's yeah, crazy. So you, you, but also if if yeah. if you would go to some of the biggest states in Denmark to shoot a, a huge trophy, you'll be looking also about twenty thirty thousand US dollars. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like still. I mean, that's hunting. still comparable though. If if you're going somewhere to some high fence ranch, yeah. and, and you're picking out just some massive trophy deer. You're still looking at paying the same. Yeah, we have. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I would say this, and you know, maybe it's just me because I'm a hick and I like simple stuff. But uh, if you start out with a small package with like roe deer, maybe some rough hunt for pheasant, partridge, duck, whatever, that experience over and of itself, because it'll take you time to adjust to you know, the time change or whatever, you want to be able to enjoy yourself. And it's such a low pressure, low stress hunt. You will get more for the experience that makes that value for your money, you know, way better, in my opinion. No, I love, I love the idea of walking two around. Grand, yeah, I mean, to spend two grand to go sit in a tree stand in the U.S. to me, when I can do that anywhere, as opposed to spending two grand, you know, and then spending a week hunting in Europe on, you know, a different cultural mean it to me it was it, it was it was life changing for me, not just in Denmark but in Hungary, Czech Republic, Poland, things like that. Just being able to experience that style of hunting, and it's like going on a small game hunt, like Will said earlier. You know, you go out, you enjoy yourself. The rough hunt that we or the rough hunt is what Thomas called it, where we take the dog and it beats the bushes, and we just you know have a day of it. You're, you're spending time communing with the locals and, and really appreciating the culture and what and what you're getting out of the experience. So it's not just you're sitting in the woods. You know what I mean? Yeah, Sounds you, fantastic. Your experience makes the hunt much more valuable. Exactly. That's, that's also, even if it is. Oh, sorry. I said even if it is with Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sorry. <laughs> That is that is something that's definitely manageable. I did. I mean, so but what does that look like uh, as far as uh, me as a, an American hunter? I'm concerned with getting my meat back. What happens? Can we get that meat back here, or does that stay with you? Or what happens with the the majority of the meat that's harvested off of your 
property? The, the majority we uh, take for ourselves, uh, except for when we have those days that we sell. Uh, when we sell a day, it is included the meat. The price is including the meat so that the guns who comes here or our guest for the day, they'll take home what they shoot. Uh, and of course, <clears throat> those days will be uh, the majority of what we take out uh, throughout a year. And then in my own household, we'll eat about red deer, five rodeos, uh, and, and so we, we only eat game meat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's, that's all we eat. We, we never buy a steak or anything because we have it from red deers or fallow or whatever. Uh, the rest we sell out. You know, Will, you and I in about, a, in about five days could easily put away half a roe deer. Oh, I don't doubt it. We wouldn't even have to bring it home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking. I, I don't know if you're allowed to it, actually, because I think that in, it, it will be almost impossible to take the meats uh, from Denmark to, to the States. Yeah, there's workarounds. So you just have to know somebody that works always, at UPS. There's, there's uh, I forgot that I was talking to American people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rules are more like you guidelines. Said that was impossible. <laughs> I'll prove you wrong. Yeah, so when for, you said you. Go ahead. For, for example, I, 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 know, I know folks <clears throat> who have uh, frozen meat and uh, like, you know, dry ice and packed it in their in their uh, in their luggage on the way out around styrofoam inside their luggage. And they and they carried meat back and it was still frozen. solid when they got back from the airport. I, I was going to say long as, it, as long as they don't lose your bag. If if uh, if I can have goose pastrami shipped to me from Washington state. Uh, in a in a like a, a mailer bag, and it still come in cold. I think we can get some some roe deer meat from from Denmark that, back to Florida. That, Definitely. That, that's I, I was only thinking about the legal part. We don't think about that. It's only illegal if you get caught. That's, that's, oh, yeah, yeah. that's true. You, you've heard that. You've heard that before, right, Thomas? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> no whistle. Repeatedly. Yeah. So does so is it? It's, it's one of those things where you're talking about, uh, like, the FDA and, and – inter- so it would be international as opposed to intrastate, uh, you know, products coming through. So well, there, there is a limitation. Like, it's hard to bring trophies back sometimes without the right documentation. Right. So yeah. I, I know there's there are um, – it's – you can't bring anything back from Africa. Um, and we have actually, uh, you're, you're not the, the first person, Thomas, we've had on the podcast who has an accent that most people haven't heard before. Uh, we've actually had <laughs> two guys from South Africa, um, uh, one guy from Australia, but you're the first one who has actually still been in the country from which you, you, oh. you got the accent, right? So, um, the first guy from South Africa, um, uh, Mr. Robbie Kroger with Blood Origins, uh, he's in Mississippi now, but he still very much has the accent, and he does a lot of work um, in dispelling the myths again uh, of, of big game hunting in Africa in general. And yeah. that the Blood Origins podcast, man, they and the the nonprofit work that he does is, is just awesome. Um, but and then you know we've had Henrik. Uh, and he's been in in the studio, and then I cannot remember the Australian guy's name for the life of me. Oh, Zach's guy. Yeah, Zach's guy. Yeah. Bruce. But, uh, no, 
No, but uh, that was all talking guns and <laughs> optics, and he was uh, Australian military. Um, oh. But <clears throat> it's uh, it's definitely interesting because I know that if you want to go to hunt Africa, you can't bring anything back. And I don't know specifically the laws of, as far as America's concerned with bringing things back from European countries. I don't know that there's a, and I know that, that Africa stems from a, what they call a quote unquote trophy hunting aspect. Yeah. Um, Cecil. Yeah, that's what it is. It's, it's Cecil. The, the Cecil act. Right. Which is absolutely yeah. foolish because asking an American hunter to go to to go to Africa and drop the big dollars to go hunt sable uh gems you know all those things and say you can't the only thing you're going to get is a couple of pictures and maybe a piece of backstrap that's asking a lot the guy can't even bring the head back they're they're not going right yeah. it's it's, and it's actually, stupid it's, it's a huge problem for yeah. I was in South Africa 3 weeks at time uh, 3 weeks ago I came back uh, I had a group down there, um, and a lot of the outfitters, also the one that we work together with, uh, has been under a lot of pressure, first with the Cecil Act, and then, of course, with the COVID situation. Um, and for those um, green organization, tree huggers uh, people, um, they, they are nice, some of them, I'm sure, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but they're destroying and killing more animal than the hunters do in total altogether. Because if they're having their way and destroying the trophy hunting, you can say bye-bye to all kinds of preservation. You could say bye-bye to all kinds of uh, uh, park ranges and everything that should uphold illegal hunting um, and all that kind of things. It is extremely important that we keep the trophy hunting. I had a conversation with a woman the other day very similar to that and trying to explain to her the difference between hunting and poaching and that yeah. you, you, I understand that she personally, it's okay that she doesn't choose to engage in that. But if you appreciate wildlife, you, you really need to embrace the hunter because in the absence of the hunter, what you will have is the poacher. And, exactly. and, and as you already alluded to, when you remove the hunter, you also start to remove the income that supports the infrastructure that would that would uh, prohibit, keep, the prohibit poaching. And, and especially in places like Africa, because we, we've seen it already played out, right? That as soon as you remove the rules, chaos takes over and all of the animals are very quickly eliminated, right? And so, also, be, yeah. And, and another thing I think is very important that we tell people, Oh, sorry. No, you're good. Oh, um, is that when it comes to hunting and the money that hunting creates, it's not uh, a dollar created on hunting has actually more value where it's created than a dollar created in the city. Because what we need to keep in mind is that they are created out in the rural part of the countries far away from everything where there's not a lot of opportunities to create dollars 
you don't have a lot of factories. You don't have a lot of other infrastructures like you have in cities. You only have the nature. You only have the hunting. So when you create a dollar out there where there's nothing else and you're like two, three hundred kilometers away from a city, how are you going to create another dollar? That dollar is more worth than a dollar created in the city. And it's extremely important for people to know <clears throat> that hunting takes place in rural parts around the world where people are poor in some of those countries. And poaching is, is actually their only option to create a dollar. And a poacher uh, many times uh, doesn't do it because he likes it. He'd do it because he needs to. Trophy hunting, by its definition, once we eliminated the market in the United States, is literally what saved the wildlife we have today. I think too many people get caught up in the fact that uh, we say trophy hunting. I say trophy hunting, and you think what? You think big animals. You think big horns, big this, and this is what we're going to kill. We're, go, we're going to kill uh, the high fence deer, the, the, the monster elk. But at its basic form, when the market for hunting was eliminated, it was meat in and of itself was a trophy, right? So when we put in hunting regulations to save, to, to protect the animals that we had left, we were, in fact, trophy hunting. Absolutely. So trophy hunting in and of itself has saved the animal populations here. Now, point number two, which you brought up, the poachers. And I think that's a little different here in the U.S. because our hunting is, uh, is the, the way we hunt is different. It's much yeah. more readily available. Um, the majority of the poaching done here in the U.S. is done by a few people that do a lot of the poaching versus a lot yeah. of the people doing a little poaching. So but and you, do you have a lot of poaching? Oh, yes. Mm, yes. Yes, oh, very much You so. do? Yes. Oh, yeah. I wasn't aware of that. Um, it, I, a lot of that consists of, of hunting. I, I would say the majority of it consists of hunting at night. People that uh -huh. hunt at night uh, using spotlights or crossing boundaries or shooting deer out of season. Now, when you talk about a poacher here, your average poacher... Uh, he he or she shoots a deer outside of season, or they shoot right. a deer with a spotlight. But now you have the majority of poaching within each state is committed by a few poachers who, and this is statistically, you know, th this is what they, they believe is that you, you have a few serial poachers that go out, and they shoot deer and leave them lay. You're talking a difference in a poacher and what we would call a pot hunter. Someone who goes out uh, because uh, I don't have money for meat um, and I need to yeah. feed my family. I shoot a deer, I drag it home, and we we all eat it. Versus a poacher who goes out, shoots deer because he wants to shoot a deer at night. He or she wants to shoot a deer at night and leaves it laid in the field. Both are illegal. I would argue to say that one is more morally correct than the other. Well, there's, well, pe there's also, people that kill animals here without purchasing a hunting license, or they go out of state, right? And they'll kill a deer or whatever, and they say, "Well, if I can get away with it, I'm not going to buy the license." 
Well, you know, if, you, if you're hunting without a license, you're poaching. Correct. But I don't think that's the same style of poaching that Thomas is referring to in Africa in the absence oh, no. Of, no. of No, of no, yeah. and I was referring to Africa. Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> if, if we take to the industrial countries like, like ours, uh, Denmark and, and the U.S., we are wealthy countries uh, for most parts of it. Um, <clears throat> We don't have the need in the same way, maybe a few people does, uh, to go up poach or, or to be a pot hunter. But also in Denmark, you can find sometimes, you know, you hear a, you hear a shot during the night and, and out of season. Um, if, it's, if it's from my area, it's probably a cat or fox. But, <laughs> but some other places, you know, you can, uh, you can hear it. And, and if it's really out of need, I... I kind of get it, but it isn't. It is like you say, it's, it's people who just want to shoot a deer at night and, and lay it. It's, it's only for the thrill of the killing they do it. Right. And that should be punished immensely hard. You know, they, they, they're, they're not hunting. They're, they're not allowed to, to hunt. They shouldn't be allowed to hunt. I, uh, I agree. I completely agree. And, and actually, in the United States, there are, uh, I think, believe it's almost all 50 states now, uh, that have joined together. And if you get caught in an egregious poaching case, um, you know, not only do you lose your right to hunt in the state in which you poached, but you lose that in all of the states. Yeah. For like so, seven years or something. Yeah. Like well, it depends. I think it depends on the, on the, um, game severity, the, the severity yeah. of the case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, if you lost it in one year, uh, here you lose it in one year everywhere. You know, from our experience with most, um, I was going to say game wardens, but, you know, uh, wildlife officers, man, if you get slapped with that charge, y- you deserved it. Yeah, you because know, oh, they, they're all pretty darn, really, they're lenient a lot of times. Yeah. They, unless you did something really egregious and really stupid, they usually will issue you a citation. You're going to have to appear before a magistrate and say, yeah, I did something stupid. And they're going to fine you and say, don't do it again. But when you start losing your ability to hunt, it's probably not the first offense. And what you did, like you, you, you were way out of bounds. You're well, a criminal. The the perfect example is you know when we were at that Rock Springs hunt and the guy Screwed messed up. up and he shot a deer. He shot a doe when he didn't have doe tags, and he owned up to his mistake. Uh, the game warden came out. She inspected it. Said, "Yep, that's you know you you screwed up," uh, and she wrote him a warning. Said, "Don't do it again." And then yeah. she hung out with us while he skinned the deer and Jim skinned the doe he shot. And we had conversations and, and it was all, it was all good to go. It, but that stems, you know, goes back to the point that he brought the doe to the check station and said, Hey, exactly. I screwed up. I fucked up. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> we actually, <laughs> we have a, uh, so I had a friend who, uh, who made something like that? He's uh, he's into uh, waterfowl community uh, out in the west coast of of the country where they have uh, tried to do some nature restoration, <clears throat> and then they're allowed to hunt one day a week in that area, one day a week in another area, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then we have uh, the barnacle geese. Uh, we have shitload of geese in Denmark uh, in. now and, and especially over the last 20 years they have been increasing so rapidly in numbers that 
we're now uh, licensed to regulate them. Uh, I think we have uh, we have the hunting season for them from actually the grey lag starts in August and they're starting to take the Canadian goose also in August and all the way out February. And then you can have a license as well to push them off the lands and shoot and shoot them also in other months because the the numbers are so high. But back back a few years ago, you're not allowed to shoot the barnacle. And this guy out there, he shot two barnacle geese in the, in the dusk, you know, in, in the dark. And he was making a mistake. And he's, he's a really, really good hunter. He hardly makes any mistake. He shot thousands of birds, but this time he made a mistake. So, and he took it and he called up to the local police officer because we don't have game wardens, it's just the police. And also because he's the chairman of that uh, area for the waterfowl. <clears throat> so of course he owned up to his mistake and called the police and said, listen, I screwed up. I thought these were gray legs, they're barnacle. I shot two of them. And then the policeman told him, well, you know, it, it happens. Never mind. Uh, we're not going to do a report or anything of this. So everything is fine. An hour later, the policeman calls my friend back and said, uh, okay, listen, now we need to take a report now because someone reported it. And uh, we have a lot of, uh, is it called ontologists? You know, the bird watchers. Oh, oh, ornithologist. Yeah, ornithologist. Yeah. Oh, boy. <clears throat> ornithologist. Yeah, we have a lot of them out there because we have, uh, we have a lot of migration birds. And one of them apparently spotted him shooting barnacle geese and reported it to the police. So, so the policeman calls him back and said, okay, now we're going to do a report. And then the law in Denmark say that you need to destroy the game so that you can have no benefits out of it. And so my friend is, is asking the policeman, well, uh, how, how do you want me to destroy these two geese? And then a policeman referred back to him and said, well, I would suggest that you'd put them in the oven for about one and a half hour and 180 degrees. <laughs> and they'll, they'll be destroyed <laughs> just perfectly. So this policeman also, he, he was great because this is the most stupid thing. You know, the animal is dead. This guy goes up and said, listen, I made a mistake. Why would you destroy it? You might as well eat it. It's dead. You, don't, you, you, you can't bring it back. But I get that you, you need to have some kind of rules also to prevent poaching because otherwise it could be a business. Right. Well, if he called well, in it, next it, week it, and the week after and made the same mistake three times. Exactly. Right. Then you've got yeah. a problem. Or if, if he had done it, not told anyone and then got caught, it's different. Exactly, yeah. but 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 it, it goes to say that you know most law enforcement, as most hunters, believe that integrity goes a long way, and mistakes happen. You know, you you you've got a, a buck tag, you've got a doe that you know looks like a buck because it's standing near a brush uh, branches or whatever, and you know it's low light. You take the shot. You know, you think it's a, or whatever. It turns out to be a button buck and whatever. You know, but if you're have the integrity to call, self-report, do the right thing. You know, nine times out of ten, it's going to work out. You know, with a warning, with you know, hey, maybe some corrective action or training, but it's not going to hammer you to the fullest extent. But you know, we're we're we're, we're talking about people with integrity, as opposed yeah. to poachers that are just you know going out to do whatever they want. But also, it 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 cannot be 
you know, uh, uh, a, a sliding range or what, it, what it's called. I don't know the American word for it. But, no, you're right. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not something that we can call upon to take shots, you know, on a 50-50 chance basis. We also need, even though it's low light and it might be a buck, it might be a doe, the, the good hunter, and I think that we'll all consider ourselves as good hunters, we would say, okay, it's just not today. I'll take it tomorrow in better lives. Yeah. Uh, but I know that, that, that mistakes happens, but we should always try to be uh, the best versions of ourselves. You know, because if, if we start uh, to cut loose on, on the ethics, it could easily go south very quick. Oh, 100%. And I, I think and one, especially with you, because, you know, your morale is like <laughs> one, one, one thing we say around here is that ignorance is no excuse. Yeah, right? exactly. You had you had the time to, to learn and everything. And if you make yeah. a mistake, you own up to it. Yeah. But also what <clears throat> that's, that's one thing that that I've always been puzzled about it. Now I have no less than four American guys that might be able to tell me, why do you guys have bag limits on ducks and doves and stuff like that? Because we'd kill them all if we didn't. The 100%. You would. Yeah. People would get greedy. Yeah. yeah. You, you would absolutely but have I've, people would get over the greedy. I, I've well, been on morning flights where the biggest morning flight I've had was 376 geese. Well, when and you're I've, talking I've 100... had Plutus under Plut plus 200 several times. Pigeons, you know, 100, 150, 200 pigeons. And, so when, and... When, you're, when you're talking migratory birds, though, those birds aren't only, they don't only fly over your area. So the reason that why they put bag limits is on, bag limits on there is to have them be sustainable for all the ranges that they go through on the way as well. Yeah, and, yeah, but and, I know, but but I use so many hunters in the states that you would be able. Well, you did it with with that migration bird uh, pigeon, I know, but you also burned a lot of uh, uh, roosting trees down and stuff like that. But would you be enough hunters that you could almost wipe them out? Probably. Well, I, think more, yeah. I think it's more preventative because we don't want it to get to that point, and so we would rather err on the side of caution. And does is it? Is it depressing for us as hunters to not be able to shoot, you know, shoot the lights out of everything? Yes. But at well, the same time, we also understand to, to want to have that for our children and our children's children and to have the same opportunity in other ranges that, that these birds fly through. I think that's important. I think a huge part of it is uh, we're all ethical hunters here. Uh, but I, I also think there's a large amount of uh, hunters, at least here in the States, that if they didn't have a bag limit and they saw a flight of 300 geese, they would attempt to kill all 300 of those geese. Well, case in point is we have uh, white geese. They've, you know, we have white geese over here, Ross's geese, blue geese, um, that there are too many of them. And they're starting to denude the tundra and compete for food and outcompete other species. So for yeah. years, we have a conservation hunt where there is no bag limit. Um, and in fact, no bag limit. There's no shell limit. You, you guys putting extensions on their shotguns where they're throwing, they're putting 
15 to 18 rounds and when the when the geese come in and you've got six guys in a blind it's yeah. mayhem but the odd thing you yeah. think but the funny part about it is although they have decreased the population they still haven't gotten to where they want to be yeah. because the geese are prolific and they're not stupid right so no. even the geese have figured no, it no. out and that's that's actually hitting my point because you guys know how hard it is to get uh, when, when you're talking decoying birds, how hard it is to get those days where everything just works. Yeah. You know, to, to, to find a hot spot, to, to make everything work, to be there, to be there in the right time, and, and they're just hammering the decoys and everything, and then you've got a bag limit of 10. And it's like <laughs> you've put tons of work into it, you know, hours of hours of scouting and, and hours and hours of building blinds and putting out decoys and then everything has happened. But, but wouldn't people say like, like we do, because this is of course my uh, days of decoying uh, where I had these big numbers is of course over many years. And then if I had a day like that, you know, I can live on that for a long time. I wouldn't go out the next day or the next week or, whatever again you know I'll, I'll take this day and 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 save it and keep it in here you know for for a long cold night uh but but when you put all that work to especially the decoy with with the shotgun which is uh, for me one of the uh the most hard work hunts it will uh it's it. I've I've always think when I've seen those those American videos on YouTube that that is just sad that they can't keep shooting just a little bit more. So well, I think, you know, Thomas, our, our wives vote also on these bills. Yeah. They want us to come home eventually. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thomas, <laughs> I also think it has a lot to a lot more to do with uh, how we spoke about earlier. How much more you guys treasure hunting? Yeah. Right. So. For some people here, it's not as treasured. So if you said that if you killed that many, that you wouldn't go out the next day. And I think there's a lot of people here in the States that would still go out the next day and try to kill just as many. I don't disagree that as a whole, we we probably do to an extent take it for granted. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was yeah, going to ask they, you a question. They treasure the sport itself and the harvest everything a lot more. Yeah. The, you're, where you're hunting geese, is that, again, on another expensive lease or is that public water? Uh, now you can actually in in Denmark we have uh, we have a bit funny law. Uh, the open water is actually free for everyone, as long as you're a Danish citizen. Uh, so you can hunt them on the open water uh, and and shoot them free. But uh, mostly it will be on leases uh, because you'll shoot if if you're going to shoot huge numbers you'll shoot them on farmland. Uh, you'll find a hotspot and then you'll decoy. Uh, and then you'll shoot huge numbers, but you'll have to wait. We always have a saying that you shoot the geese on the third day. You know, you find them the first day, you keep checking on them on the second day, and if they're still there at at uh, the end of the day when it gets dark, yeah, you'll go out in the dark and be ready for first light on day three, and then you'll shoot them. <clears throat> but it, yeah, it, I, I I actually think that. I've never thought about that, but now you've said it a couple of times that a lot of American takes it for granted, and we don't. We treasure it uh, way more because we know that, that we have small lands, and, and when we finally, uh, you know, hit a day like that, uh, it is, 
it is something that we treasure for a long time. And then you could probably find a Dane that, that would go out the next day and try to do the same as well. But most and, and huge majority of the hunters would really treasure that. You know, we'll call our friends, we'll show off the, all the birds and have the parade and we'll celebrate, but we would never go out the next day. And, you yeah, know, but also think, you've got 134,000 hunters. We've got, what, 3 million? I think yeah. you've got about 15, don't you? We we have about a, a 190,000 here uh, in Florida as of 2018, which I know those numbers went up in 2020 with COVID and so on and so forth. There, there isn't quite a, a very accurate <clears throat> one that I was able to find but, real quick on Google. But also here in, in Florida, you know, we have 14. 14 million acres of public land that we can go and hunt on. Right. And then you talk about your waterways. If we want to go hunt ducks, as long as we can access it via a public boat ramp and it's not otherwise stated, uh, let's hunt some ducks. Yeah. I I mean, it's, it's that, it's that simple, (laughs) right? So it's, it's, uh, it's a little easier to take that for granted because it is so, as much as we look at it here as being difficult, it's simple in the terms of of what you're talking about. We have more access. I had one day last year, last season. I had one day I was looking all the winter. I have have a special place uh, out here in my land uh, where I put uh, maize every year. Uh, we use them for, for the pheasant shoe, for the driven days. Uh, but uh, at the end of the season, around December, I uh, cut them off uh, and just destroy them and leave them on the land because then I know the pigeons come in. We have the wood pigeon and they come in. And <clears throat> then I have throughout January where they're in season where I can shoot them. But what we need is that we need some frost, snow, something to make them come in hard. Uh, and I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then on 27th of December, we started to get some snow. Uh, we actually got some snow on Christmas Eve. And, and then we have uh, snow and frost for a couple of days and I could see the birds starting to come in. We shot that one day was the 27th of December last season. We shot 69 pigeons. We, we used about 250 shells. Uh, and it was, it was hugely great fun. It was windy like hell, and we couldn't hit for shit. But it was brilliant. You know, we shot 69 pigeons, and it was brilliant, and we treasured that. But I had that one day where everything came together. And I think that is, that is actually the answer to my question is that you can always find another boat ramp or another piece of public land and you can just go. You don't have to wait for all the things to come together for the birds to be on that exact spot that you own. So you, you talk if about, makes sense. I talked about 14 million acres in Florida. Um, and that may seem like a lot, but 95.8% of the state of Alaska is public land. Look at Utah. Utah is public. Arizona, is Nevada comes in in second place with 87.8% of it, and Utah in third with 75.2% of it being public land. Yeah. So. Of, of, of the total area of the state, 
Yeah. Correct. 75% of, was it Nevada or Arizona? So 70, 75% of Utah and then 87.8% uh, of, of Nevada. 95.8% of public land, and you can go there to hunt. Right. Correct. Well, yeah, but in Nevada. All right. We're, we're, going, we're, we're going to change now. When can, if I can get a plane, how could I? When can I get a plane? <laughs> well, you, you <laughs> can. You can have my shit of land. <laughs> so, so, so when Thomas came down to hunt with us, you know, Fort Stewart's federal land, but if you buy a permit, you know, you're, you're good. But we even went up to, you know, North Georgia in the mountains, and we were on an area that was, you know, 100,000 acres. And we camped for free, and, and, and we could hunt to our heart's content. Yeah. So, you know, the availability that of that public land was, you know, aside from the police showing up for hikers getting injured Ooh. in the woods in the middle of the night. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, the, the opportunities that we have, European hunters don't have that well, so, know, by, by, by a large margin. So if you two had to guess, how much, do you, how much, what percentage of the state of Georgia do you think is public land? Uh, I'd say uh, 63%. 9.7%. 9.7%. Say again? 9.7%. Really? Yep. Florida. What's the rest? Florida with 14 million (laughs) acres is only 29.2%. The rest of Georgia, a lot of it's farms and then, of course, a few cities. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so it is is a lot of private land. Yeah. Okay, I thought the areas that we were hunting was quite huge. Yeah, they, they, I mean, they are, right? Um, obviously the, the lowest percentage in the U S is Rhode Island. Cause it's very tiny, uh, <laughs> as a public land concern, but Texas being one of the biggest States, uh, besides Alaska, the biggest state in the lower 48, <coughs> only, uh, 4% of it is public land. Well, so, it's mostly ranches. Right. So, I mean, that makes sense. Right. But mm-hmm. I mean, still, but even with that, when you're, when you're talking about the size of our States compared to the size of Denmark. You know, Denmark would fit in most of our states outside yeah. of Rhode, Rhode right. Island, you know, New Hampshire, Vermont, whatever. But the opportunities that we have as American hunters on our home states is vastly greater as far as being able to be accessed by your everyday man. Oh, absolutely. You know, with the, with our WMAs, with the, uh, you know, Bureau of Land Management, with, you know, the Forestry Department, with whatever. I mean, we, we have so much access that we take for granted and you really don't appreciate that until you go overseas. Cause even in Germany, you have to own a revere, you know, you have to petition to own a revere. Reveres are kept in families for a long time and it's managed by the state. They tell you, you have to take X amount of game off of that land. And if you fail to take that, then you get fined. So yeah. each, each country is different, but you know, how they manage that is, is also vastly different. Um, and but, I mean, in in Hungary, I was hunting an area that was three thousand hectares, and I mean, it was like the Wild West compared to anywhere else in in Europe that I was hunting. But uh, you know, it, it it it's really country by country is 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 restrictive based on the amount of really I I'd say con- ultra conservative environmentalists that really caused a challenge for most hunters overseas. In my experience, my very limited experience, I should say. Is that a fair statement, Thomas, in your experience? Yeah, it is. Uh, I was actually, for once, trying to agree with you. 
<laughs> no, no, but you're actually, you're, you're really, you're right. Uh, all the different European countries have a lot of different uh, regulations on, but, but, but what is, uh, what is fair to say for all of them is that they have regulations and, and quite a lot of them. Uh, in Poland, for instance, which is one of the countries that we operate a lot in, uh, you need to have at least combined 3,000 hectares to be able to hunt. It is an old communist Soviet state. And back in the Soviet Union time, it was owned by the government. And most of the hunting uh, in Poland is still owned governmental. The, which means that in Poland, if you have a farm, let's say you, you own a farm, 500 acres or something, you can say that you do not want hunters to go on your land. Then all the crop damage done by wildlife is paid by your own pocket. If you say, okay, this is in the, the syndicate, which the, the government have decided to draw the lines around, it is just a minimum of 3,000 hectares, and that goes all the way up to about 20,000 hectares. Uh, if your land is in that, all the crop damage will be paid by the hunting syndicate. And then you, you give the hunting to the syndicate and they'll uh, control the population. But, but try to think that in Denmark, if you have five hectares, you can shoot all you want. And in Poland, you need to have a minimum of 3,000 just to be able to hunt. Wow. And it's, it's, it's six and a half hours drive from, from my place. It's like so, I was driving in Georgia. Yeah. 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 And it's, that, that, that's how different it is. And if you go to Germany, the lease in Germany is, is, is actually quite low if you're going to take on. But as Daniel says, then you have a minimum quota to be shot if you're, if you're taking a lease on a public land. You can't, as a German hunter, go and hunt public land. But what you can do is that you could sometimes pay uh, a day fee or a week fee and then you can go and hunt and you can shoot maybe two rodeos, four rodeos or red deer if you're lucky, wild boar, whatever. But otherwise, if you take a lease on a public land, you'll have to have a, a certain amount that you must shoot. But you'll also have uh, all the roads that is crossing your area. If you have a roadkill, a roadkill deer, it is your responsibility to remove that deer. So we have a lot of Danes taking leases in Germany, but they have to team up with some Germans because you can see for, for my to go four hours to get rid of a roadkill roadier wild boar, to go back just to figure out that the police is calling again and then another guy called, <laughs> made a roadkill somewhere. So you have all these kinds of different things. And what is uh, in common for all us European is that when we look to the States and your hunting over there and your opportunities, we're like, holy sh... I don't know if we're allowed to curse on this. Nah, you're yeah, you're fine. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but holy shit, you have so much liberty in, in, in all your hunting that we can only dream about. We have boundaries 
uh, when Dan was here, you know, and, and we spotted a deer and he was like, all right, let's just chase it. Well, you can because you, you just went out of boundaries. That, that's, that's the neighboring area. And, you know, and he's like, holy fuck, is, is it so small? Yeah, but in comparison, you know, we, we could hold, hunt the entire country and that would be one of your public land. Right. Yeah. So, that, yeah that's not. Yeah, I'm sure, especially when you talk about Alaska. Uh, (laughs) but uh uh, thomas i I don't want to keep you on here till the sun comes up uh oh well it's a it's a little bit too late i think i'll go robot hunting yeah actually (laughs) it's got to be uh see it's about uh almost 10 o'clock here so it's about almost four in the morning there three four in the morning uh yeah it's a quarter to four yeah Uh, so uh, lights are starting to get up oh yeah a little bit a little bit um it's it's easy to say that it is vastly different to hunt in Europe yeah. versus hunting here in the U.S. Um, and I I forgot to warn you guys before we started this, but we try to end every podcast with a tip of the week. Uh, and this is just something that uh, you know, either a piece of experience you've learned along the way, so on and so forth. But we'll cycle through the room here first, and then we'll jump back to you guys. Unless you guys have something you you've thought of right off the right off the bat piece of knowledge no Um. all right i'll go first all right so i'm gonna say uh i'm gonna say trust your gut uh when it comes to we kind of talked about this a little bit in the podcast ignorance is no excuse so when you're looking down the rifle sights or you see the the duck coming in and you just don't know and you're unsure you're better off to not take the shot than you are to take it and hope for the best. Because if you don't shoot something that you're unsure of what it is, you're definitely not going to be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I got one for you. I'm going to say, man, if there's one thing that I've taken from tonight the most is to... uh value and and cherish your harvest more man because i I know that uh i'm really thankful for every harvest that i have but it's not often that i i I take the time like you guys do to to genuinely sit back and just respect and do everything possible that i can to uh to cherish that harvest I would say for me, it would be remember to uh, that, that our hunting community is more than just getting out in the woods and shooting stuff. You know, it, it is about that, that camaraderie. It's about the shared experience. It's about providing the opportunities for inexperienced hunters or experienced hunters to enjoy and appreciate what it is you have available to you. Absolutely. Jim, Thomas? I've got one. Mine's a little bit more practical. So, uh, hunting season. Hunting season. Oh, no, that wasn't (laughs) supposed to be an insult to any of you guys. Where it wasn't supposed to. I'm sorry. I guess that didn't come out right. It was practical from the standpoint of hunting season is largely wound up or wound down unless you're going to chase some late season turkeys in the northern latitudes. So, down here in Florida, we're very much swapped over to fishing mode. I know some guys fish all year, but for me, it's now officially fishing season. They're pretty right. soon. 
you know, now's also where the serious duck hunters should be looking at their boats and figuring out what kind of other neat stuff they're going to add. And, you know, it all comes down to electricity. And um, one of the things that I sometimes get frustrated with is, you know, you start getting to watts, to volts, to amps, and uh, it gets confusing. Well, our good friend Briar Woodham is uh, taking his mechanics exam next week uh, to, to move up from being a journeyman to a full-on elevator mechanic. And a lot of what he's doing is looking at electricity. And he shared with me a very simple table. It's actually a circle. And it it's hard to describe, but I'll put it up on the Facebook, uh, our Under Pressure Outdoors Facebook page, share it to the show notes. But it's a very simple table that when you're reading these things and you're trying to figure out perhaps how to do some of your own wiring on your boat, or if you want to put in a fish finder or something like that, rather than take it on down and pay a small fortune to have it done, when you're reading the instructions as to how to do it and you use this table, it actually makes it, very easy to figure out how much load you could put on a circuit and things like that. So uh, hopefully we're going to have something that will make it a little bit easier for some of you guys who want to do it yourself uh, to get out there and prepare your boat for the uh, for the upcoming fixed season and the next in the next duck season. Yeah, shoot, you can even take that into preparing your camp for deer season. Yeah. I suppose if you really want to get into the boxes. Box, you, and yeah. The, yeah. yeah. That's Briar's solid excuse for, for not being here this evening. He's, yeah. he's got to study for his mechanics exam. Uh, well, he better pass him. Yeah, I would hope so. He's been doing it for <laughs> almost five years now. But uh, Thomas, what do you got? Well, for me, it's quite easy. Be the good example. Yeah. Always try to be the good example, uh, especially if you're experienced. You know, we can sit here chat uh, for as many <laughs> hours that that it should be, but. It all comes down to when we're out there and we meet people, uh, just say what you're going to do and do what you say you're doing uh, and be the good example. For us in Denmark, it's always, oh, if I don't shoot it, the neighbor will shoot it because of our small areas. Uh, <laughs> for me, I've always said, and also for the guys that hunt my land, always be the good example. Let it go. You know, if it's a small buck, let it go. If the neighbor shoot it, he knows that it came from our property. He could see it walk over the border and he shot it, but we didn't shoot it. So be the good example. And what I can see from the 15 years I've been doing that is that actually the neighbors are starting to not shoot it because they know we won't. So be the good example. It's the only way that, that we really and truly can show people what we mean versus, you know, quite cheap sometimes. So just be the good example. Well, Thomas, I really appreciate you, uh, staying up so late to join us this evening. <laughs> You're welcome. That was my pleasure. Hey, let's it's, get his, let's get his information and put it up for anybody yeah. who wants to maybe think about going Absolutely. over to Europe and having go a, ahead and, a walk you, around. You go ahead and tell us now, uh, how people can find you and come hunt with you over there in Denmark and then make sure you, Send it to me in an email, and I'll get it in the podcast description uh, so that people can find well, you would, even easier. I would say that, that, that the easiest part is to, to find me on Facebook. Uh, Thomas Moberg, uh, or find my farm, which is called Clink God, uh, also on Facebook. Otherwise, uh, write me an email uh, on clinkgod1915 at uh, gmail.com but 
those I'll also forward you. But find me on Facebook. Uh, it is always the easiest way. Uh, otherwise, you can use all the the other kinds of social media, Instagram or what is it called? The one you can call WhatsApp, stuff like that. Hmm. So, but Thomas Moberg, I'm, I'm quite easy to find. Otherwise, find Mr. Daniel Blanchard and he'll, he'll put them in touch with me. <laughs> Dan, I appreciate you uh, staying up as late as we have to join us as well. No, well, you know, I, I do. He, he never five, sleeps. Five, he, no, he, he never sleeps. He just lives off caffeine, nicotine, and hate. That's right. <laughs> caffeine, nicotine, and hate. The three things you need to get by. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. I'll uh, tap out. And uh, it's been a, been a pleasure. Really, it's been a pleasure. It was good fun. But we'll catch you guys it's next It's been week. great, Thomas. I appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs>